Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Or have you not read in the law how, how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Amen. I don't know if the word Sabbath means a whole lot to most of you here, but um, what we're doing today, gathering like this on a Sunday, is really a carryover from what the Jewish people observed every single week, something called the Sabbath. And so I want to bring clearly to light what the word Sabbath really ought to mean for us. And I want to ask you to really flow with me, to pay attention, because some of what I'm going to say this morning may bump up against what you were taught growing up and how you've come to regard what Sundays are and should be in the life of the Christian. Now, a favorite subject of observational comedians are things like this. If you listen to a lot, how many of you listen to a lot of stand-up comedy? I listen to lots and lots of stand-up comedy. And um, there are certain themes that every comic, just as a matter of obligation, has to treat at some point. And so every comic seems to talk about, you know that, that, that furniture in your parents' home that's covered with plastic and no one's ever allowed to sit on it because that's the good furniture? Or maybe the decorative soaps shaped like seashells in the guest bathroom that have been sitting there for 15 years and no one's allowed to actually wash their hands? Or maybe the monogram towels that are for show, but you're not supposed to wipe your wet and dirty hands on them? Or how about the good dishes, the fine china, which you, your parents got when they were married, and no guest yet has been born who was worthy of those dishes? Right? And so they stay hidden in a hutch, and no one ever gets to eat off of them. And the reason that that kind of observational humor is funny to us is partly because we, we can identify with it. It probably is true in our families but because they are such clear examples of missing the point. They're examples of missing the point. You know, dishes and furniture and soap and towels all have a purpose. And their purpose is not to sit beautifully preserved. They are to be used. They have a function, and when you deny them that function, they become monuments to having totally missed the point of it all. And I think we often do that with spirituality and with religion. There is a strong human tendency to obsess over the wrong things and thereby absolutely miss the point on the important things in the faith. And the Jews did that with something very important and central to their faith, something called the Sabbath. And so I want to talk to you a little bit this morning before I I move further about the essence of what the Sabbath was to the Jews. Now, when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness before they entered the promised land, they were wandering for 40 years, and they needed to eat in the desert. If you've ever been out to the desert, you know, there's not a whole lot to eat. In fact, when we go out to Tuba City, we'd starve to death if it wasn't for Bash's grocery store. So the desert doesn't have much. So God would send down some mysterious grain-like substance called manna. It was kind of doughy, flaky substance, and every day... The Israelites would go out and they would gather enough to make some bread, enough for that day's sustenance. And it became a daily habit. But here's what what Moses said to the people. 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. That's legally to say, not only should you not work, you should not outsource your work, you crafty people. The whole point is no one should do any work. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore... The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so what Moses is teaching is because God rested as an example to us on the seventh day of creation, we also ought to acknowledge that our lives require a certain rhythm, a syncopated beat where not only do we just run, 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 pound, 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 but once every seven days we are called to set apart some time to just rest in the provision and the presence of God. That's what the word, the Hebrew word Shabbat means. It literally means a cessation from activity. And the main idea there was that the work that we do to earn a living, our vocational work, is that which we should cease from. It's not to say that no work ought to be done whatsoever, but that the kind of work we should cease from is that activity which earns us income. And so that's, that's really what the, the Sabbath was all about. And I think that God gave the Sabbath to human beings for three really important reasons. There may be others, but one key component of the Sabbath is just rest. This idea that because we're finite, we need to be replenished. Would you say that's true of you? Would you say that it's true of you that if you just keep running hard, pounding, and there's, there's always in, in any room a few people who pride themselves on, I don't need any rest. I'm like the Energizer Bunny. I'm a machine. I I pop five-hour energy and Red Bull, and I just go, go, go. You're going to die early, and you're going to make everyone around you really, really miserable along your downward spiral, right? Because we are not infinite beings. We absolutely require pauses, holy pauses to be replenished. I think there's a second component, which is worship. And I think the song we sang this morning, the, the, the um, banqueting table song, that, that one verse really captured it well. We delight ourselves in your goodness, O God. That's really what worship is. Okay? Worship is a reflective delight in the goodness of God, in the worthiness of God. Think about this. Why do you think God rested on the seventh day? You think he was beat? He was like, oh, I'm so infinite, but man, I am pooped. I'm infinite and almighty, but making this universe, I'm just exhausted. Do you think on the seventh day, God napped the whole day? Woke up like six in the, after, in the evening, like, whoa, what happened? I was really, no. Obviously, he was not resting because he was beat. He was resting to teach us something. And I think when you see the whole creation story, you get a hint as to what God probably did on that seventh day. Because every day after creation, he looked at what he made, and what did he say? Man, that's good. That is good. He looked at it and he gloried, delighted in the goodness of what he made. Just like an artist after a finished painting or a photographer when he gets the perfect shot. Photographers, you know what I'm talking about? Once every like 80,000 photos, you get the one that you just go, man, I could just quit now. I just got it, the moment. And so it's this delighting in the goodness. And so I think on the seventh day, God just soaked in what he had just done. He looked at the universe, at human beings and animals and rainbows and unicorns, if you believe such things. And he's just looking at all of it, and he's going, it is all so good, 
And he was delighting in it. And I believe that's what Sabbath worship ought to be about, is reflecting on the many ways in which God is so good. Not dwelling on the ways that we are, our lives are incomplete, but on putting our attention on the goodness of God and soaking in the glory of it. And I think there's a final component to Sabbath, which is trust. See, how many of you are on salary? Okay, all right. So a lot of people today work on salary, which means for us, we can't understand what the big deal is about a day off of work. We welcome a day off because a day off of work does not cost you any money, does it? But if you're an hourly worker or if you're a farmer or you run a store, every day you don't work is money left on the table. There's customers walking in and out of neighboring stores, but they're not visiting yours because you're in church and you're, you close shop. Every day, especially on Sundays, they pay you time and a half. And it's like, man, to not work on the Lord's Day is really tough because every day off of work is a day of lost wages. Well, for the people of ancient Israel, that's exactly what their reality was. To not work meant that for this day, I can't take care of myself and my family. Where will my provision come from? And what God said is, you need to learn to trust me. Do you really think that your furious labor on days one through six is what keeps you alive? On day seven, as you stop gathering, you need to understand that it's me who has kept you alive all the days of the week. It's a way of saying, I trust you, God, that even though I could make more money on this day by ceasing from it, I'm trusting you to give me what I'm not giving for myself. It's a way of remembering that all along, even through my hard work, it was God who is faithfully taking care of me and meeting my needs and my family's needs. And so I think those are three very important components of what constitutes the spirit of the Sabbath requirement. It's why God gave us the Sabbath as a wonderful gift. It was meant to be a holy pause in our week to help us learn how to um, love God more deeply, to receive and bask in the love of God, and then to become more loving to our fellow man because we have some bandwidth and some fuel in our recharged souls. So here's how the Jewish leaders ruined the Sabbath, okay? Here's how the Jewish leaders ruined it. One day, it says, Jesus and his, his uh, disciples are walking through a grain field, and they begin plucking. This isn't like when you walk through Dominic's and you pluck grapes and you steal the grapes. Or This isn't stealing. The problem here is not that they're stealing, but they grew hungry, and as they were walking, they would grab a few heads of, of wheat, and they would crush it in their hands and blow away the, the junky stuff, and they would pop it. It doesn't sound to me like a good snack, like raw grain. Gross. I mean, even, even with... Honey and cinnamon granola bars are not like your favorite snack, are they? So they're eating this, and then the Pharisees, and I'm not sure why the Pharisees were even there, but maybe they're just following him around, looking for a way to trap him. They go, ah, see? Look, look what you guys are doing. How do you condone that behavior? Now, a lot of people think the problem was they were stealing from some stranger's field. What kind of religious men are these? But you know that the, the law of Moses actually allowed for this. It says, if you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to his standing grain. That's like, you know, if you grew up in an Asian family, for some people, this is their experience that you go to Old Country Buffet and mom would have a large Ziploc bag in her purse and putting some chicken in there and all that, you know, like just don't, shh, shh. you know, that's not allowed. You can eat your fill while you're there. But you're not allowed to take it home. That's just not allowed. 
And so so the, the disciples of Jesus were not breaking some rule of stealing. They were absolutely within their rights, hungry, walking through a field and just grabbing a few heads of wheat and popping them in their mouth. That's okay. And yet the opponents of Jesus point to this and say, why do your guys do what is, and this is the important operative word here, what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And that's what gets Jesus fired up. What do you mean unlawful? What are you talking about unlawful? What is unlawful about what my guys are doing? See, the thing is, they were not violating any biblical law, including the one for the Sabbath. But here's what they were arguing. The Pharisees were arguing, when they pluck the wheat, they are in fact harvesting. Which is just ludicrous. And then here's what they also did. When they crush the grain, they are threshing. And then when they blow away the chaff, they're winnowing. And so in effect, they're having this little microcosm of agrarian life right there in their hands. They are working on the Sabbath. You should condemn them. The Jews obsessed over the minutiae of detail with respect to the Sabbath. They were absolutely bonkers for trying to figure out what constitutes work because they knew that they were not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And so they said, all right, that's great. Now let's just sit around for like years and years debating what exactly is work because we absolutely don't want to accidentally do any work on the Sabbath. And they, they did this ad nauseum. There's a, a book called the Talmud, which is a written record of all the teachings of the Jewish leaders, the rabbis. And it is thick. And 24 chapters of this thing alone are filled with nuanced, nitpicking regulations about the Sabbath and all the restrictions imposed upon them. I want to just give you a a little um, fool's gallery of some of the the more ridiculous um, Sabbath regulations. Here's one. You could only travel on foot up to 3,000 feet from your home. But there were loopholes where if you tied a rope across the street to your neighbor's house, then your neighbor's house, by connection to that rope, is part of your house. And so you get an extra maybe 50 feet. And then if from there you tie another rope. And so these guys were playing like rope games because the, the regulation is so specific and precise. Here's another one. You could not carry any burden or load heavier than a dried fig. If an object weighed half that amount, you could carry it twice. So clearly they're good at math. You could eat nothing larger than an olive. Even if you tasted half an olive and found it to be rotten and spit it out, that rotten half was still considered part of your olive and was considered by the law to have been eaten or as good as eaten. Throwing an object into the air with one hand and catching it with the other is prohibited. So baseball fans, you can't even play catch with your kid. Tailors did not carry needles with them on the Sabbath for fear they might be tempted to mend a garment and thereby accidentally work. No fire could be lit or extinguished, including fire for a lamp, although a fire that was already lit could be used. So even to this day, Orthodox Jews, they use timers and they set their lamps to turn on just before sundown on the Sabbath because if they didn't remember to turn on the lights in their house or they were away from home, they can't turn on the lights all night. A light already lit can stay on, but you cannot turn on or turn off a light. And so they burn through the night. This is the rigor. Here's one. Baths could not be taken for fear that some of the water might spill onto the floor and accidentally wash it. 
Are you starting to get a feel for the absurdity of all this? If a person became ill on the Sabbath, only enough treatment could be given to keep him alive. Treatment to make him improve was declared to be work and therefore forbidden. So if we were Jews observing the Sabbath and I began profusely bleeding out of my ear or my nose or my throat and I looked at Dr. Alex and said, you are ear, nose and throat guy, please help me. He go, oh man, if only it weren't the Sabbath. Listen, here's some cotton balls, plug that junk up and come see me tomorrow when I can charge you for this. Do you see how absurd it was? The pit, the, and think about this. What a distorted picture of God these guys must have carried around with them to actually suppose that God up in heaven was agonizing over stuff like this. Doggone it, there he goes, 3,005 feet from his house. Where's the honor due to me when he walks that far? From, how did they arrive at 3,000 even? What, what was that number? Some divinely given number? But this is what they did. They had such a distorted picture of God, they actually believed he cared about this stuff as much as they did. And in the, in the whole process of it, they had grossly missed the point. The Sabbath, which was meant to be a day of resting in the presence and the provision of God, had become for the Jews of old the most burdensome, stressful day of the week. Far from being restful, it was the day that you could get in the most trouble. In fact, in, in extremely orthodox communities, they followed the Old Testament law, which was if you violated the Sabbath, even on accident, it was capital punishment. The community could surround you and stone you to death for violating the Sabbath. And this is how they lived. So that on the Sabbath, instead of, ah, oh, God is good, I'm resting. It was always like, oh, Lord, you got to... And, and you know... It was just so full of tension and strife. So when they say to Jesus, look, your guys are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath, Jesus lost it. He was so upset because he said, there's nothing in the law which God righteously gave that prohibits this. The only thing they violated is your stupid, absurd collection of little rules where what you've done is where God has not made rules, you have made rules for him. You have added rule upon rule upon rule on top of the simple command of God and thereby have burdened God's people so heavily they can barely sit up. You have created a culture entirely driven by violation, fear, uh, standards and restrictions so that there's no joy in the Lord. There's simply fear that you might not make the cut. You might somehow violate a rule which God desperately cares about and he'll stop liking you because of it and all the blessings will leave your house. How would you call that in any way good news to anybody? It seems to me that if you were a Jew, the preference would be to find a valid reason to be irreligious because religion was very, very heavy and very expensive for most people. Jesus says in Matthew 15, 9 of the Pharisees, their worship is a farce for they replace God's commands with their own man-made teachings. In other words, they teach as doctrine things that they command. They, take, they make up rules and they elevate it to the same level of importance and moral force as God's rules. God's rules are absolutely valid. We should never pray, play free and loose with God's rules. But when we start adding to God's rules out of fear that these dummies might misunderstand, we begin weighing people down. 
And that's something that every religious person feels this inner tension, this desire to do all the time. And why do we like rules so much? Because let's face it, rules are easier than understanding the heart of a thing, isn't it? Rules just simply define it. You know, some of my children are more like this than others. They don't want a certain broad picture. They just want to go, what am I allowed to do? You know, like, can I hit my sister? No. Can I do this then to my sister? How about, how about this? Can I do that? Can I, just as long as the moisture doesn't actually hit their face, can I do it? And it's just wanting to know exactly what can I get away with? What can I do? What are my boundaries so that within that realm, I can freely function? Never mind that what I'm trying to say is please stop bothering each other. We prefer rules. We prefer religion because godliness is very confusing. That means I got to get to know what God's like. I got to actually try to become like him to be changed in character. It was just give me religion. It's easier to be able to tick off. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I am good. I'm righteous because I follow the rules. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to do away with rules. That's not what Jesus is trying to say is rules stink. They're for dummies. But he's saying that where you add rules on top of what God has given, you sin. You sin. So here's how Jesus redeemed the Sabbath. Okay? We'll go through this and then we'll be done. So pay attention here. Here's how Jesus takes that broken system of rulemaking and contortions and twisting and he sets the people free of all of this. In their excellent book, Made to Stick, brothers Chip and Dan Heath, they're, they're two um, business writers, and I think one of them, uh, one or both are faculty at Stanford. And they wrote this book about how to make vision or marketing things stick in people's minds. And in it, they, they highlight this very interesting thing called the commander's intent. What they realized was, as military leaders drew up battle plans, they would invest hours and hours and hours pouring over the maps and the objectives, and they would draft like 50, 60-page battle plans, very carefully choreographed, orchestrated things, and they would send them out to all the soldiers on the ground, and they would watch the battle unfold from the safety of their headquarters through satellites, right? Here's what happened, though. You would get the battle plan out there, totally detailed, but the problem was the enemy didn't know about the battle plan, and sometimes when they were supposed to zig, they would zag, and then the soldiers on the ground would go, what do we do now? We were supposed to flank, but now they're over here. We thought they were going to be over here. But you know what a soldier is taught above all things? What is a soldier taught? Obey orders. Don't think, you dummy. You're not paid to think. You're paid to die. Just obey orders. Obey. That is again and again and again drummed into. So they would follow the original battle plan, even though it was suicidal. And obviously, the generals don't like watching their soldiers die, but they couldn't figure out what was wrong. It was because they were following the battle plan, even under changing circumstances. And so, they, it was a stroke of genius. They began to put on every battle plan a simple, bold-faced line called the commander's intent. And here's what it was. The commander's intent was simply this. Here is why we've drawn up this battle plan. The simple, clear, concise objective is... I want you to take Hill 185 at all costs. The enemy cannot have Hill 185 by tomorrow. I don't care what else you got to do. This battle plan is my recommendation, but if they change on you, you've got to change with it because at the end of the day, here's your accountability. Take that hill. I don't care how you do it. Take that hill. Here's my plan, but you get that hill. And that's, that's the exact heart of it. The commander's intent is not every little nuanced directive but the overall picture, what is it that I want you to do or to accomplish? 
And this is the, the difference between the law, the way the rabbis taught it, and the law, the way God gave it. When God gave the law, how many did he have? Anyone know? I mean, if you watch History of the World, there was supposed to be 15, but then he dropped one of the tablets, and so now, here's your 15, ooh, 10 commandments, right? But God is so simple. He gives us 10 laws that summarize his heart for human life and for worship. Four of those laws are vertical. Six of them are horizontal, how we relate to one another. It was that simple. It was when it entered into human hands, and part of it through God's leading, much of it not. That simple statement of law became distorted under the weight of thousands and thousands of lines of extraneous code. Don't just do this. Don't just honor your mother and father. Do this and do this and do this and do this. And it's just overwhelming. You're like, I can't remember all of that. And so there's this idea that it would be helpful for us if we're really going to follow God, not just to know all the rules he has for us, but what is our commander's intent? When he gives something like the Sabbath, is this so that by all means, please do not work? That is the entire focus of the Sabbath, is obsess over what qualifies as work and don't do it. Is that really where their energy was supposed to be invested? Absolutely not. The reason he gave the Sabbath is so that they would value rest, they would spend adequate time in worship and glory and delight of him, and that they would place their trust more and more in God's care for them, not in their own vicious caring for themselves or frantic caring for themselves. That was the commander's intent for the Sabbath, and they totally missed it in the midst of all these rules. They were such legalists, these Pharisees, that they adhered to every rule, but totally missed the boat on what God wanted from them. And so he brings up a story. If when, you, when you're dealing with the Pharisee and you bring up a Bible story from the Old Testament, that's the way of poking them in the eyes, going, you guys don't even know your own stuff. Don't you know, and this is a very well-known story in, in Jewish history, that David, when he was running away for his life from Saul, who was vengeful and jealous, Saul was trying to kill him, and David and a band of soldiers were running all through the land for their lives, hiding in caves, and they were starving. So they come to the tabernacle, and they sneak in, and they see... Have you guys ever fasted and then you saw the communion bread and you actually were starving? You're like, I can't wait to get that little chunk of bread. So they saw this bread that was, was made just for ceremonial worship. No one but the priests were supposed to touch it. Lots and lots of rules associated with this bread. Now, to God, it's bread. The rules matter. His holiness matters. But these guys revered the bread. The bread was sacred. The bread was, But the bread was also... Wheat and flour and eggs and butter. It was something that brought sustenance to people. And here's God's beloved David running innocently for his life. He and his band of men come to the tabernacle. And there's all this bread. And they go, dude, we've got to eat that bread. So under certain deception, which is not so cool, they get this bread, they chow down on it, and nothing happens to them. It's as if God said, yeah, under normal circumstances, that bread should not be touched but I love you, David, and I love your men, and you needed to eat. And so the purpose of the law was not to starve you to death under this restriction. It was to care for humanity and express the love of God. I'll give you a parallel situation. Imagine if you're a total Pharisee, and you saw a baby crawling across the middle of a busy intersection in the city, and you're about to run out, and all of a sudden you see that the little do not walk sign, the orange light is illuminated. And you're like, darn it, drat. I could save that baby's life if only 
the little white guy, with, you know, the walk sign would illuminate. I, until then, I can't. I'm just trying. Do you see how absurd that situation is? That under normal circumstances, that rule is there so people don't get killed. But the intent of the thing is not to block people from saving babies' lives. It's to create order in normal life. But somehow life is fluid and complex. And beyond that is this necessity to know what is the heart of this God? Is he a rules-dominated God? Or does he have a certain picture of humanity and of himself which drives him forward? For which the rules point us to become like God. Are the rules, the the things themselves to be worshipped? Or is God to be worshipped? Are we to become like God or to become like people who follow the rules God's given? I'm not in any way diminishing the importance of rules, except to say they must never be worshipped at the expense of actually capturing the commander's intent on the heart of God. And he says as much when he says, when he says here, um, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Boy, if you could know what that means, you wouldn't be blaming my guys. That's a quotation of Hosea 6.6 6, where God says, it's so simple. You want to know what I want from you? I don't want your sacrifices and you slit in the throats of goats and all that. I'm not delighting the blood of all these sacrifices. What I want is through it all for you to become more like me, to learn to be merciful and compassionate and righteous. In another passage in Micah 6, 8, God makes it very clear. Here's his commander's intent. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. If all your rules do not produce that kind of life among you, then the rules have become for you an idol. And let me tell you, one of the most dangerous idols in the world is religion. It gives people the illusion of godliness with no reality of godliness behind it. And there's always going to be people who would prefer that because it's more objective and clean. The commander's intent is that we should, through the rules and through every other means given to us, become like Jesus. And the commander's intent of the Sabbath is that as a result of the way we set apart one day in seven as holy to the Lord, right, that we will become more restful and worshipful and trusting of God. Now here's where Jesus takes it further. He doesn't just say, I don't like the way you guys play with rules, but he says something very important, and you cannot miss this. He says, listen, I, the Son of Man, am greater than the temple, and I am the Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean to you? Here's what I believe it means to me. From the beginning of the early church, since the days of Jesus, it has been the tradition of Christians to gather on Sundays and devote it in the, in the spirit of the Old Testament Sabbath requirement to set us apart Sundays as our holy day. In fact, many people are taught, and I was taught this, in fact, I taught this for years, that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. But a careful study of Scripture will reveal that's actually not correct. The spirit of the original Sabbath is intact in that we are meant to devote a day of our lives for ceasing from, from our vocational work for the purposes of all this. But we've got to be very careful not to impose upon the Sunday celebration and observance the strict rules and requirements and moral force that the Jews felt when they were thinking about their Sabbath. The spirit of the Sabbath is intact on Sunday observance, but it is not our Christian Sabbath. 
And here's the problem. With, with the Pharisees making so much of the Sabbath, the, the message they gave between the parentheses was, this is the only day where you've got to be really on your A game. Really worry about not dragging chairs and all that because this is the Lord's day, but all the other six days are your day. How many times have we said that in the church? This is the Lord's day. This is a holy day. And Jesus goes, no, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. This day is not the only holy day. In Jesus, every day is holy. Do not become a Sunday Christian who suddenly thinks this day is different. I should be watching how I talk. Oh, I swore on the Lord's day. You shouldn't swear on any day. It's not just that you can be whatever you want, as selfish and self-absorbed Monday through Saturday as you want to be. This is my day. I make my money. I I follow my own leading. But on Sunday, I'm going to give God his due. Do you realize that God is due far more than one day in seven? That the Sabbath was for us to find rest, not for us to tell God, you get one day, I get the other six. And that's why we must be careful not to make so much of Sunday that we eclipse the fact that Jesus, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, is Lord over all days. That he redeems the Sabbath and says it's not just one day, but all days and all of life is sacred, is sanctified to me. Don't teach your children and don't teach other people, be on your best behavior because it's Sunday. Why should that make a difference? It's a day where we gather as a family to worship. That doesn't mean you should be flippant about your commitment to be at church on Sunday. It matters because we have covenanted as a family to do this in this place at 10 o'clock every Sunday. That commitment does matter. But don't teach other people and don't believe for yourself that somehow this day is qualitatively more important than any other day to God. There's teachings scattered throughout the epistles in the New Testament Why are you going back to Judaism, making much of the Sabbath and of this day or that feast or that moon celebration? That is not what Christianity is about. It's the ceremonial observance of certain holy days to the eclipsing of all holy days. But in Christ now, we've entered a new covenant where he has redeemed everything. Everything is sacred. Everything belongs to God in Christ. And that's why my, the, the force of what I'm saying, I believe, this morning to you, the thing that God is impressing on my heart is, let us make this Sunday observance reflective of the whole way that every day we look at Jesus and we live for God. Are you following that? Because I know that the church in America is filled with Sunday Christians. People who believe that because we have done this thing, we have done our duty before God, Nothing could be further from the truth. I believe that our faith is more measured by Monday through Saturday than by what we do on Sunday. Sunday should be what propels us into the reality of our faith, into how we live for God and how we live for others. And if you believe for a minute that tomorrow morning you reclaim your week and you go back to your deal, you have greatly dishonored God and the Lord's day was not really the Lord's day. It was his weekend to have custody of the children. That's not the arrangement we have with God, is it? Our whole lives belong to Jesus Christ. He has redeemed all of it. I don't know if these serious looks are because you're processing all of this or you're really mad that I've just stolen back Monday through Saturday, but this is the truth of it. I know how well-meaning and well-intentioned we are when we try to teach our children, it's the Lord's day, but let's try to teach everybody. Let's try to live in this reality 
that every single thing on the earth is subject to the dominion of the one true King, Jesus Christ. And that the spirit of the Sabbath, of resting, of worshiping, of trusting in God, is not just for one day, but that one day reminds us how our whole lives ought to be pursued because of what He has done for us. This is the glory of the Sabbath tradition, and that's why we need to preserve some of that spirit of it, but we need to reject the rural orientation with which it was handed down to the Jews. So I encourage you today, if this is a day in which you have agreed and covenanted to set apart a day, one in seven, that today you would think deeply about that. That you would take some time to really rest. Right? For some of you, that means don't watch the Bulls game because you can't rest. (laughs) You just get so agitated and sinful. But I don't know what it will mean for you. Just make sure you find a pocket of quiet and peace. And make sure that you take a little time today to review verbally with the people you love the goodness of God. We, we always share verbally all the things we're complaining about, all the things that stress us out and fill us with discontent. But it's important to verbally rehearse the goodness of God and to glory, to delight in Him. Just say, man, look what God has done. Just look at our lives. You know that song? You do all things well. I just love that song. Just look at our lives. Depends on which part you're looking at, but you know, doesn't it, isn't it important that the discipline is let's glory and delight in the goodness of God. And then today, knowing you're not working, remember this. It's God who feeds you and your family every day. It's God who clothes you and cares for you and has secured your future. Today, it should be a day of replacing our trust in his hands, saying, you do all things well. You will take care of us. I want to invite you to just bow with me. It's it's a difficult message to give because I don't know how to speak these things without necessarily diminishing the seriousness of Sunday. Sunday, because we've agreed that this is the day for us to come and worship together, fellowship. It is a very important commitment for us. We should not make light of what this represents for us. But I simply want to say that because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath and the Lord of all things, we need to jump from this place and say this should be the template for the totality of our lives, that Jesus has dominion, that he is good always, that we find our rest in him, we trust in him, we delight in him in every place on every day. So may that spirit, the true spirit of Sabbath, remain over our church all the time. Be guarded fiercely, preserved. And may we do away with dead religion that are the rules of men and cling to the heart of God and what he has called us to become. Why don't we just respond to the Lord in prayer? And one thing I think would be good for us to just, as we respond to God prayerfully, is to say, Lord, Please root out of me that religious spirit that wants rules instead of a true relationship with you. It's so always right there for us, that religious nature. But instead to say, Lord, I want to know you and I want to become like you. I want to be freed 
for godliness, not imprisoned by religion. I think some of us more than others really do need to bring that before the Lord and ask Him to change our hearts. Pray. Let's just go to God. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.